Hello. Go ahead and wave. Go ahead and wave and say hello to all your community of hope friends. If you want, what you can do is you can, instead of on the, on the top right, instead of speaker view, do gallery view. I am seeing 25 faces at one time. There's another page, lots and lots of faces. Hey, guys. Good to see everybody. Lots and lots of people logging in. Welcome to Hope University, week four. And uh, more and more people are logging on. Just great. We already got 60-some-odd people who have hopped on in. So uh, this is great. Good to see everybody. We're glad that you've joined us again for this week. We're going to have a, a great time tonight. And uh, we're going to learn a lot about God's Word and about the Psalms. And so, But we'll talk more about our speaker in just a moment. We want to remind everybody uh, some of the rules of engagement for, uh, for tonight is uh, be throughout the whole thing. Don't wait. If you have a question, we're going to put it in the chat field in Zoom. And I would encourage you, please don't wait till the very end to ask your question. If you have a question, put it in the chat as it's going along, and that will help me organize the questions uh, better for Dr. Maxwell here. And so um, we're excited about that. Uh, we're excited about next week's Hope University for just a little bit of announcement type of a piece. And for that, I'm going to let Kathy Copan explain that to everybody. Okay. Uh so next week, some of you who've been at Community of Hope for a while might remember um, Mark and Andy Whitwer, who are part of our church. And uh, Mark has been teaching uh, science in Christian schools for many years and has been very helpful to my family. He's going to be teaching us on various Christian views of creation. And this would be a great one to invite young people to. So if you know any uh, high school, middle school, college kids, but really for all of us, this is going to be excellent material on um, that we don't really have to worry about fighting science, but actually God's world and his creation actually lines up with uh, his word and scripture. So um, it's going to be excellent. And I'm really, really excited about it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Fantastic. So make sure that you register for that. And uh, that's going to be a great time. Um, so, uh, Kathy, if we don't have anything else to, to let everybody know about, let's just go ahead and get to our business for tonight. And uh, can you introduce our speaker? Yes. So I'm excited to have Dr. Nathan Maxwell uh, speaking to us today. He's one of Vic's colleagues at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's an associate professor of biblical studies there. Um, he got his PhD from Baylor University and in Old Testament. And um, both Nathan and our speaker from last week, which is his wife, Kathy, grew up in Alaska. So uh, that's something to be jealous of them about. Uh, they grew up in Alaska, met there. Um, they've been married for 23 years. They have two adorable boys, Achaius and Leo, uh, four and two. And when you see Leo, you will not believe how much he looks like his dad. It's <laughs> exactly like a little version of Nathan. Um, Nathan and Kathy have been attending Community of Hope uh, since they moved out to Loxahatchee. They're in the Arden development, um, just moved out there recently. And uh, really kind of right before the whole pandemic hit, they started attending our church. So we're glad to have them as a part of our church. And one of the main areas of Nathan's research and study and teaching has been the Psalms. So we are excited to hear from him tonight about how to really correctly understand the Psalms how to get the most out of them for our own spiritual growth. I know that it's going to be really helpful for all of us. Um, and I want to let you know that if this kind of teaching that we've been having at Hope University has been helpful for you, 
Um, Palm Beach Atlantic University is starting, we mentioned this last week, they're starting a new one-year Bible certificate. Um, and if that's something that would be interesting to you, we will post a, a link to some information about that um, on the chat window in a little bit, or maybe on the web page, one or the other, you'll find it there. So, uh, so yeah, we're excited to have uh, Nathan sharing with us tonight. It's going to be really helpful. Well, whoever is screen sharing, please stop doing that. Thank you. Great. We caught that just in time. Okay. All righty. Um, Kathy, finish that thought. I'm, I cut you off there just one second. Yeah, no problem. Maybe everybody needs to be aware. Do not click the screen share button on the bottom of your screen. <laughs> yep, only Dr. Maxwell is allowed to do that. He's the one teaching tonight, okay? <laughs> yeah, Great. so just if, if you have an interest in more of this kind of learning, uh, I do want to make you aware that Palm Beach Atlantic is offering this new one-year Bible certificate, and it will make some information available either on the chat window or on the website about that. Great. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much, Kathy. Uh, one last thing I forgot to say for everybody for just a little bit of housekeeping. We are having technical difficulties as in I was having tef- technical difficulties across the week trying to export the video from last week. So instead of being up on Thursday, it was up on, it went on YouTube on Saturday. And then it went on our website on Sunday. So uh, my video rendering software is giving me a hard time with that. So we apologize for the delay with that. But that's all on our on YouTube and on our website now. So make sure you can go check that out if you want to review Dr. Kathy Maxwell's teaching on women in ministry. So there's that. All right, great. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to pray. And then uh, we're going to hand it off to Dr. Maxwell. Thanks so much for being here, man. Great. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the Maxwell family and for um, all their contributions to your kingdom at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And Lord, how they are becoming such a part of Community of Hope. And we're grateful for them for that. Um, Lord, would you give peace to our brother and uh, touch him with your presence. And we open ourselves to learn about you and your word uh, through the Psalms. So open, Lord, we pray this prayer from the Psalms. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Okay, so I know we're all muted, but let's go ahead and give a hand and welcome Dr. Maxwell. All right. Why don't you, I'm going to start the screen share here again. Okay. And then uh, we'll go ahead. Great. All right. Thanks so much for... um... Uh, for that welcome and uh, for the invitation to be here. I'm so excited to be um, with you here tonight. Thanks for coming out. I'm looking forward to talking with you about the Psalms. Uh, Kathy and I are um, uh, teachers at PBA. I will say that she is um, the uh, clear favorite on campus. I'm unaffectionately referred to as the other Dr. Maxwell. I don't want to say this happens every day, but a lot of days I'll be walking across campus and someone will say, are you Dr. Maxwell? And I'll say, uh, yeah. And they'll say, I love your wife. She's like my personal hero. Will you please tell her that she's my uh, favorite person? And I'll say, yeah, she gets that a lot, but I'll make sure to pass on the message. So Kathy's a tough act to follow, but I'm kind of used to it. So um, I'm looking forward to our uh, time together. The Psalms is a pretty big topic with a lot of moving parts. Um, and we've got a pretty small space. 
And so I want to try to focus on uh, one particular question, <clears throat> which is, uh, what am I supposed to do with these psalms? That is a, a question that I have been asked on more than one occasion from students uh, verbatim. What am I supposed to, to do with these? So I want to try to um, be very selective and focus on just a few properties of the psalms that helps us kind of um, build the blocks to try to come up with an answer to that uh, question. There's a couple of challenges, and uh, I want to kind of uh, work our way into uh, that question and focus on these uh, two challenges by showing you a couple of uh, quotes. Grasping God's Word is an introductory textbook on interpreting uh, the Bible. Um, it's the book that we use at PBA. I use this textbook, and I really like it, um, for uh, teaching students kind of uh, hermeneutics 101, how to interpret the Bible. Um, Duval and Hayes are outstanding scholars. And in my opinion, Danny Hayes is one of the best Old Testament scholars um, around. Um, but you notice that when they approach the subject of the Psalms, there's just a little bit of hesitation in terms of how to use the Psalms as uh, theology. When when they're discussing this particular subject and uh, approaching the Psalms, they're uh, drawing from and referring to another text, um, which is another great book one I would definitely recommend, um, uh, Fee and Stewart's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. They sort of quote from this in Grasping God's Word. Um, if you don't have this on your shelf, I'd recommend it to you. It's a great text. But uh, like Grasping God's Word, you detect a little bit of hesitation when it comes to the use of the Psalms as theology. And so that's kind of um, one challenge in terms of approaching the Psalms. In what sense are they theological? Um, how do we use them as uh, theology? Now, um, these uh, authors, these uh, Bible interpreters are, are not crazy. There's some really good reasons for um, the hesitation that you sort of detect in these uh, quotes. Um, just want to mention two, two really quick details um, that's sort of related to that. Uh, one is that the direction of communication in the Psalms is a little bit different than the rest of Scripture. We normally think about Scripture as God's word to us, but the Psalms are explicitly humanity's words to God, what people have to say God, uh, say to God about their pilgrimage of faith. And um, the second detail is that the Psalms are pretty unflinchingly honest in what people have to say about um, their pilgrimage of faith and have to say to God. Um, I know what mama always said, but when the psalmist doesn't have anything nice to say, he just keeps talking. And so you'll often find the psalmist kind of saying things that they're not really supposed to. And that's sort of the hesitation behind these authors when they start talking about using the psalms uh, theologically. On the other hand, in some respects, the psalms are the very heartbeat of the theological import and message and um, what the psalm, uh, what the Old Testament has to say about who God is and what it's like to um, uh, follow God. 
Um, Trimper Longman is probably one of the um, best evangelical Old Testament interpreters um, alive today. Um, he's uh, very widely regarded as such. And um, I, he's pretty spot on when he says the Psalms are really kind of the heart of the message of the Old Testament. And we think of the Old Testament as this story, Abraham, Moses, and David, but the Psalms really capture what that story means to the people who actually traverse that uh, pilgrimage of faith. Um, I uh, don't want to leave out this very often quoted little bit from the great reformer Martin Luther, um, who he doesn't just say that the Psalms are kind of at the heart of the Old Testament, but that kind of everything that the Bible has to say is somehow captured um, and comprehended inside the Psalms. That's, that's pretty ambitious. That's kind of the opposite end of a little bit of hesitation. Um, and so in some sense, the Psalms sort of contain the full scope of the message of Scripture. And so our first challenge is this kind of mixed messaging that we have. In what sense um, are the Psalms theological? There's kind of more than one view um, about that. And so it's kind of hard to understand um, how to approach the Psalms uh, theologically. That's been the case um, for scholarship in the Psalms as well. Um, We're not going to come within a country mile of unpacking everything on this slide, Um, It would take us kind of a whole semester to do that. But I I just kind of want to point out to you that folks have approached the 150 different Psalms looking for a way, one way to kind of pull all of the Psalms together, kind of explanatory theory of everything that can help make sense of all the Psalms and unify them together into one message. People have approached that in a number of different ways, really categorically different ways. They've looked for theological themes. Um, this is the central message of the Psalms. There's, other folks have said, no, it's not really about finding like one particular theme at the center of gravity, but it's more about finding the right method. So the right technique of interpreting the Psalms. Other folks say, no, you, you've really got to situate the Psalms in the right historical context. And that's how we make sense of all the Psalms together. And other folks have said, no, you've really got to look at more how they're used. And these are really fundamentally different ways that people have tried to collectively pull the Psalms together. So this kind of quest for the key or the center of the Psalms is still kind of an open-ended conversation. There's no real clear uh, winner. Um, there's definitely some favorites and we'll, Um, kind of get in the neighborhood of those as we move along. But I just kind of want you to see that um, there's um, not a whole lot of uh, resolution or consistency when it comes to how do we approach um, the Psalms, which really makes the question, what am I supposed to do with them, uh, somewhat difficult. So what we're going to do is um, pluck out just a few things, really just four principles or features or properties of the Psalms. And I want to single them out and use them as building blocks that we can use to kind of put together an answer to that question. What am I supposed to do with these Psalms? How am I supposed to approach them? And in what sense are they theological? How do they form my life of faith and the life of faith in my community?
So that's what we're going to do. If uh, we had a whole semester and um, could meet regularly um, and do a whole course on the Psalms, this is kind of a, a rough map. We would try in a semester to at least touch on all of these categories and all of these subjects, but we'd still have to leave a ton on the table. Um, if there's something on there that piques your interest or you're wondering what in the world it is, um, it's a good time to uh, jot that down and light up uh, Trevor's chat box. <laughs> um, if you want to um, uh, poke, poke around a little further in one of those spaces. So I'm going to be um, really selective, I guess, is why I'm showing you this, that there's a lot to discuss, but we're just going to be picking out a few things. Um, part of the challenge tonight is that really all of these things are very closely interconnected. I don't know if I can, yeah, I can write on this. So for example, if, if we wanted to talk about canonical criticism, the editorial purpose of the Psalter and the shape and shaping of the Psalter, those are actually really three different ways of talking about the same thing. And it's really hard to talk about one without sort of talking about the others. And so that's part of our problem, but we're going to do the best that we can, but I'm going to be pretty restrictive and brief. So I'm going to give you four features of the Psalms, and we're going to kind of walk our way through um, those four features to talk about um, how the Psalms can inform our life of faith. What are we supposed to do with them? The first one is that the Psalms are poetry. This one looks pretty straightforward, but when you peel back the layers, it's actually insanely complicated for a number of reasons. Um, linguists and interpreters actually really struggle to describe the difference between poetry and prose. That actually turns out to be a problem. Um, another big problem is that there really is no language in the Psalms or in the Old Testament or in the Bible to make a distinction between poetry and prose or describe what poetry is. The Psalms are never actually called poetry at all. The word Psalm mismore really has more to do with song than poem. In fact, in the entire ancient Near Eastern world, we don't have any record of anything describing the distinction between poetry and prose or describing the properties of poetry. There's no ancient Near Eastern poetics. If there is, we haven't found it yet. So that's a bit of a problem. But we're going to try to avoid all of that uh, technical difficulty and uh, try to focus on the nature of poetry and how it informs uh, how we should approach the Psalms. This is kind of my own little mashup of, definition, of a definition of poetry. And uh, just want to point out that when we talk about the Psalms as poetry, that we're squarely in creative space, okay? This is uh, artistry. Um, it's, a, it's a form of art. And it's a form of art that focuses on what I think of as almost the magical properties of language. Language is an incredible feature of uh, human nature, and it has a, an almost unlimited power to affect um, how we see the world and to affect our uh, experience. Language is an incredibly uh, powerful uh, organ in um, uh, the human body. The way that poetry achieves its art in one form or another is by structuring language. Now for us, it's something like meter and rhyme, rhythm and rhyme. Um, but 
different cultures use structure in different ways, but in one way or another, structure and usually some form of language density. So prose uses lots of words and uses kind of selective slices of what those words can mean. Poetry increases the density where every word means its full semantic range and it becomes expressive almost in uh, technicolor. So language density and structure is kind of how it animates language into an art form. And the result of all of this is to provoke you. That's, the, that's what poetry does. It moves you. It uses language density and structure in an artistic and skilled way to elevate your experience. And that's kind of uh, why it does uh, what it does. Uh, For us, we think of, um, we think of poetry as essentially rhythm and rhyme. Uh, Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. That's what we um, think of as uh, poetry. Um, Our poets are, um, uh, folks who are lyrical, they use rhythm and uh, rhythm and rhyme. I'll often ask students, I'll, I'll be like, uh, you know, the Psalms are poetry. Do you like poetry? And they'll say, yeah, I love poetry. And I'll be like, really, who's your favorite poet? And they'll be like, uh, Kanye? And I'll be like, no, that's not really what I had in mind. Um, can you name any living poet? And I get blank stares and I like, forget a living poet. Uh, just name any poet anywhere. And they're like, the person who wrote Roses Are Red, Violets Are Blue, that, that person did a good job. For us, it's uh, rhythm and rhyme. That's actually not the case for Old Testament poetry. Um, there's been a, a very long effort to sort of figure out the meter of Hebrew poetry. People have like, parsed every last syllable in the Psalms and fed it into a computer. And that quest has basically been abandoned because a Hebrew meter basically doesn't exist. So they don't really use rhythm and rhyme. Instead, parallelism is the driving force. What is parallelism? Well, it's kind of easier to show at first. So These are just a couple of excerpts. You can find parallelism everywhere. It is the fundamental engine in all of Old Testament poetry. So the Psalms, Job, um, Proverbs, Isaiah, anywhere you look, you're going to, you can pretty much crack open a a Old Testament passage. And if it's poetry, it's going to use parallelism. So you'll notice in the first one from Psalm 19.1, a great Psalm, heavens and skies, glory and work, uh, or declare and proclaim the glory of God and the work of his hand, those are all kind of different ways of saying the same thing. Some folks will refer to this as synonymous parallelism. So two lines that say roughly the same thing. Um, You can see from the other examples that synonymous parallelism is not the only form. Sometimes you can, two lines will contrast one another. Or in the last example, um, the parallelism is uh, where one line essentially evolves uh, or progresses the idea in the first line. And this is essentially what parallelism is. Um, The simplest way I can put it is that uh, parallelism is a uh, relationship between two units in poetry, usually lines, two lines that have some kind of relationship. 
the the best explanation I've ever heard is parallelism is line A and what's more, line B. And it kind of goes from there, but that's the, the basic sense. And this parallelism is the fundamental uh, pervasive uh, method of doing poetry in the Psalms. The thing about that is that it doesn't really seem very poetic to most of us. We're thinking like Kanye and Shakespeare, right? And we don't really hear anybody saying, you know, Kanye, he's got a pretty strong parallelism game going on. It's just not really very poetic to us. It's, it's worth point, uh, pointing out. You, you don't have to worry about trying to unpack this quote. You can read it. It will probably give you a sharp pain in your temple if you read it for very long. Um, Roman Jacobson is, uh, he was probably one of the most influential linguists in history, second maybe only to someone like Noam Chomsky. Um, his his uh, structuralist approach to linguistics and literary theory affected other disciplines. It affected philosophy, anthropology, literary theory. He was a very influential linguist. He's not a biblical scholar uh, at all, and he's not talking about the Psalms here. He's talking about just simply um, the, the linguistic property of parallelism, the thing we just looked at in the Psalms. And if you were to try to untangle um, this quote, and this is how these folks write, you've got to really trudge through their stuff. But what he's suggesting is that parallelism actually has the ability to animate or activate the full potential of language. Parallelism can kind of rev the engine of human language all the way up to every last inch of horsepower that it has. In other words, uh, parallelism is actually one of the most poetic uh, ways of, of using language. So uh, how to say this gently, but it's not the Psalms, it's us. <laughs> um, the Psalms are actually very, very poetic. It's just um, a little bit different than how we normally think of poetry uh, as working. Um, so kind of coming back to our, our sort of basic definition of poetry, this art form, we see that the Psalms, their version of structuring language is this idea of parallelism. And it actually has a very high octane potential to um, evoke the full potential of language. And so it has this full potential, um, high octane potential to uh, provoke the reader, to conjure the most beautiful or imaginative or elevated thoughts. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of a high grade poetry, uh, so to speak. And the result is that it affects uh, you, um, the reader. And that's kind of the takeaway that, I want you to understand about this first uh, property or first principle is that um, poetry isn't just uh, fancy talk. Um, it, it is, um, it's a medium that um, is highly specialized. It's the only medium that can effectively do what the Psalms can do for you as a reader which is to say they can very powerfully provoke you. They can imagine a world in a particular way and imagining that world can have a very profound effect on you. 
So I, I think um, uh, poetry is one of those things that a lot of people say they like, but really nobody ever really likes. <laughs> um, when was the last time you heard a full sermon on poetry? It's just, it's not something that we really know what to do with, but um, it's sort of a, a necessary specialized use of language that can achieve something that no other way of using language uh, can achieve. You can imagine a world and that world can profoundly affect you. Um, the second thing, um, this one at first actually seems pretty complicated, but the idea is very straightforward. It's just that the words that we use to describe this property are a little bit confusing. So this is kind of my way to talk, uh, talk about it, to introduce it to you, that the Psalms are open. Usually, if you pick up a, a textbook on the Psalms or pick up a commentary, you'll hear language about the ambiguity of the Psalter. This is how this is usually talked about. People will talk about the inherent or intentional ambiguity of the Psalter. It's actually kind of a confusing term because it suggests that the Psalms are sort of confusing or it's not clear what they mean. And actually it's just the opposite. They're, they're expressive in technicolor. So it's not about um, being confusing. Occasionally you'll hear the term or the phrase, um, the anonymity of the Psalter. And that's even worse. It's a little bit misleading because that usually gets people thinking about authorship. Like who wrote this Psalm? Oh, it's anonymous. This um, has nothing to do with uh, who authored a psalm. It's related to the nature of the language that the psalmists use. I think probably the easiest term is really a generalization for at least part of what this ambiguity means. And that means that the psalms, the psalms don't say anything like, hey, that guy John is uh, such a dirty dog. He's always uh, talking trash behind my back. He told Sally in accounting that I'm too dumb to punch my own time card. And um, uh, I wish that he would stop. Instead, it says, my, inner, uh, my enemies are slandering me. It doesn't say I have pancreatic cancer and I feel like I'm going to die alone. It says in my, in my sickness I, or my illness, I cry out. I cry out to you. It doesn't say, hey, I, I lied, I got caught in that lie, and I really should have lost this important relationship. It should have destroyed that relationship, but it didn't. Instead, it says, Lord, I sinned, and you delivered me. And so it, it tends to generalize language rather than be specific. The other thing that people mean when they talk about the ambiguity of the Psalter is plurisignation or multivalence. They use those words almost interchangeably. They mean the same thing, and they're just... They're overly fancy words that simply mean an expression that can mean more than one thing. That's all that that means. Um, it's kind of easier to show. We're not going to walk all the way through this psalm, but I've just highlighted um, some of the words that illustrate the generalization of the language. So day of trouble, enemies, illness. It's not specific. It's general, kind of open-ended. If you look in the third stanza, um, actually, I should point out, even when you get direct quotes there in the second stanza, even the direct quotes have this sense of being kind of generalized. Like, this is the thing that someone would say about me if they were going to say uh, terrible things. 
but in the third stanza, stanza you'll see that uh, deadly thing um, and uh, that Hebrew expression, Deval Belial, um, it, it actually, the, the first word um, Devar can mean word or speech or thing. Um, the second word Belial can mean, um, can mean like wicked or kind of good for nothing or worthless. Um, and so that phrase, that's the ESV translation uh, that says deadly thing. It's also been translated as lawless speech, word of iniquity, physical evil, moral evil, or here in the ESV, uh, a deadly thing. Plural signation means it can actually be all of those things. And that's by design that the psalmist uses open-ended, multi-meaning, multivalent language on purpose. This is so pervasive throughout all of the Psalms, um, in particular, the generalization. In fact, when you, when you bump into a Psalm that is specific, like Psalm 51, which refers to a, you know, a particular person facing a very particular situation, or Psalm 137, which has a very clear uh, orientation to like a particular moment in history, you sort of stub your toes on those Psalms and go, hey, we're like, we're naming names here. This is pretty different. Most of the time, it's general and kind of broadly can mean more than one thing. That's what the ambiguity of the Psalter means. And that's what I mean when I say the Psalms are open. It's so pervasive that it's conspicuous. It's, um, uh, it's too common to be an accident. Like here's just, here the Psalms landed and they just kind of tend to be general. It seems to be an intentional uh, property of the Psalms. So the question is, is why? Uh, why do that? Um, and there is a kind of loose consensus here that the point is um, that the Psalms can be broadly accessible. So if a Psalm talks about the, the crisis of crying out to God um, during an illness, then the language of the Psalms has more surface area to connect to the uh, particular experience of the reader. So they're just more broadly accessible. And so this uh, ambiguity is actually a kind of openness. And I I think uh, Bellinger here um, gives the best expression um, that the the language of the Psalms, this ambiguity is... um, adaptable for life and open to use by many. Which has a lot to do with probably the historical survivability of the Psalms. I don't want to chase this rabbit too much, but people collected and read and used the Psalms long after the temple to which the Psalms were connected and where the Psalms originate and where they were used was destroyed. So think about a Methodist hymnal. Um, After all the Methodist churches were destroyed and there were no more Methodist churches, people kept those hymnals and continued to sing those songs. And so um, the idea is that the Psalms continued to speak to the life of faith. They continued 
for generation after generation, long after the temple was gone, to give words to the experiences of people trying to live uh, a life of faith. And that has a lot to do with this, um, this principle or this property, the ambiguity of the Psalms. So uh, let me check my time, see how I'm doing. All right. So this uh, third one is uh, probably the hardest one to unpack. Um, it kind of requires the most context. And um, so we'll see if we can uh, untangle this. Um, there's a few things to know um, before we really sort of talk about the meaningful arrangement of the Psalms. Um, and that's to say a little something about um, the basic structure of the Psalms. The 150 Psalms are divided into uh, five sections. So there's pretty clear division lines. Um, and you can see the arrangement of Psalms into the five books. Um, the first three books, so Psalm 1 through Psalm 89, as far as we can tell from like manuscript history, um, looking at manuscripts, those seem to have been fixed uh, pretty early on, so a good bit earlier. It looks like, what, from what we can tell from uh, sort of manuscript history, that the last two books were a little more volatile for a little bit longer before they were finally settled. And what I mean by fixed is um, arranged into their final form. So the order of the 150 Psalms in the order that you find them in the Old Testament today. So I'm not really talking about when they were written. So Psalm 107 could have been written really, really early, but it didn't become the 107th Psalm until a little bit later. It looks like this sort of thing was continuing. The arranging of the last two books of the Psalms may have been continuing even into the first century CE. So, you know, when you hear Jesus refer to the Psalms, which he does, um, the uh, five books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, probably the book of Psalms that he was reading had roughly the same order and the same collection of Psalms for the first 89. And it could have been a little bit different for uh, the last two books. So that's kind of the, the basic structure. For most of the history of interpreting the Psalms, and that's um, pre-modern and for most of modern biblical interpretation, there has, it's been the general view or the general consensus that there is no meaningful arrangement to the Psalms. That really stems from, uh, there's a, a guy by the name of Herman Gunkel, and he um, sort of developed a method that is kind of how people interpreted the Psalms for almost a half century and continue to use it today to make sense of the Psalms by arranging them into types, so sort of genres. We look at one lament psalm in the context of all the lament psalms. He's one of the most influential um, Old Testament and even Bible interpreters of the modern uh, biblical scholarship period. He basically said, there's no meaningful arrangement. Uh, it's not arranged in an intentional way, and there's no hermeneutical value or import in the order of the Psalms beyond this basic broad structure. So it doesn't really matter that Psalm 72 comes before Psalm 73. That doesn't really mean anything. And that's been kind of the general view for most of history until uh, the 1980s. 
And I know that the 1980s, for any of uh, you young folks out there, seems like a bazillion years ago. Um, I was four and I was five in 1981. But in terms of biblical studies, that's like five seconds ago. All right. Um, so very, very recently, a guy by the name of Gerald Wilson. Um, Wilson was a student of a kind of legendary Old Testament scholar named Brever Childs. And Brever Childs is famous for a thing called canonical criticism. And his whole law game was the way that we interpret scripture is by looking at the whole context, the entire canon of scripture. And that world, that canon of scripture is the framework that we use to make sense of any individual piece. So rather than trying to take a piece of scripture and put it into history, scripture is the context in which we make sense of scripture. That's Childs. Um, Wilson was one of his students. And so he was kind of trained to look at the big picture. And he said, let's take another look at the Psalms and see if it's really the case that there is no meaningful arrangement. And uh, this basically created a kind of a whole new method of studying the Psalms. Um, It's usually referred to as the editorial purpose. And what that means is um, not the folks who authored the individual Psalms, but the, the scribes who finally curated or arranged um, the Psalms into the 150 Psalms that we have today actually did so in a meaningful, purposeful, and intentional way. That there actually is hermeneutical value. There's meaningful uh, and theological uh, conveyance of information in the order of the Psalms, not just in the individual Psalms. So that together they mean something a little bit different or a little bit more than what they mean on their own. So he did this. He published, this was his dissertation. Um, He published it, um, editing in the Hebrew Psalter in 1981. He really, he looked at manuscript history. Um, That was uh, part of his uh, focus, but he really looked at superscriptions and in particular, the so-called royal seams. That doesn't have anything to do with the seamstress who made King David's uh, underpants. Although if you think about it, somebody had to have that job, which is just kind of weird to think about. Uh, Royal seams uh, refers to um, the use of a particular kind of psalm in a particular place. The seams means where one book ends and another book ends. So um, if we go back to our um, uh, division of the books, so where Psalm 41 and 42 um, uh sit next to each other, that is a seam. So where one book ends and another begins. And what Wilson observed is that there's a tendency to use um, royal psalms. So psalms can be laments where the psalmist is crying out to God. They can be psalms of thanksgiving where the psalmist is giving thanks to God for deliverance from some crisis. But then there's a few specialized psalms and royal psalms are one of those specialized kinds they focus on um, the Davidic monarchy, enthroning the Davidic king or one of the descendants in the Davidic dynasty who sat on the throne in Israel and uh, ruled over Israel. There's a handful of those Psalms and they are disproportionately concentrated at the seams. 
So his whole dissertation, which actually ends up being fairly persuasive and basically starts a whole new line of thinking or interpreting the Psalms that is uh, kind of continuing into the present, um, is that the Psalms are arranged meaningfully to poetically retell the story of Israel. And so you find in the Torah and the Nevi'im, you find the story of um, from Adam to um, Abraham to Moses and David and then uh, the Davidic dynasty. You go through that history in a, in a, narrative, uh, a narrative fashion through the Torah and the historical books. But then that story is retold poetically in the Psalms. And so what he found is um, in, the, in the early part, in the early books, they sort of um, celebrate the um, Davidic dynasty. God brought his people into the promised land. He put a, a Davidic king on the throne. And then the language of 2 Samuel 7, God promised that he would establish the throne of David forever. And it sort of celebrates that um, security and the promise of God. And then you sort of get to the end of book three and um, there's a, a kind of a shift to focus on the very painful experience of exile. And so to kind of get this, this arrangement of the Psalms, you kind of have to have a sense of the history or the story of the people of Israel, how um, God led them out of bondage um, in uh, Egypt, led them to wander around the wilderness and then brought them into the promised land. And then um, after the period of judges, established this um, Davidic dynasty and God makes a covenant with David and says, I'll establish your throne forever. Even when your descendants sin against me, your throne will be established uh, forever. And then if you know from your uh, Sunday school lessons in 586 BCE, the Babylonians came, they destroyed the temple. um, They ended the Davidic dynasty and the borders of Israel were no more. So Israel ceased to exist as an ancient geopolitical entity. And so the thing that was never supposed to happen, happened. Um, and the, the crisis of exile is the central faith crisis in the Old Testament. A lot of pages in the Old Testament are spent trying to wrestle with this crucial faith crisis of how did this thing happen? How is it that we were exiled from our land, that there's no more Davidic king and that the temple is destroyed? How did that happen? And who are we now that it has happened? It sort of rooted their identity in, uh, in those things. So that makes one particular scene really important. You get to the end of book three and it sort of laments this crisis, this loss of identity this faith crisis. And then Psalm 90 begins this uh, response to that problem. And these Psalms were arranged into their final order a little bit later. And so they're, they're kind of constructed or arranged as a response to the problem of exile, which makes one particular scene, the scene between, the scene between books three and four, um, Psalm 89 and 90, uh, pretty important. I want to flip over there really quick. I'm going to uh, try to pull that up. 
And I would encourage you to flip over to Psalm 89 with me um, if you've got a you've got a Bible handy. So Psalm 89 um, starts off with this kind of exuberant um, praise of um, the Lord's faithfulness. I will sing of the steadfast uh, love of the Lord forever. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And it kind of goes on from there. Um, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. That's David. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That's straight out of um, 2 Samuel 7. Kind of goes on to continue how the Lord will um, squash all of Israel's enemies and will remain faithful to Israel and Israel's throne. The Davidic dynasty will be established forever. And if you drop down to um, verse 29, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove him from my remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. If you drop down just one more verse to 38, you'll find a pretty dramatic turn. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And it kind of goes on from there to sort of lament um, the very painful um, and traumatic event of uh, the exile. So this is a really stunning psalm. It um, just creates this severe dichotomy between this promise of God's faithfulness and this pain of exile. This thing was never supposed to happen. And now the people of Israel have no idea who they are. Um, They wake up one morning and they're exiles in a foreign land and their temple and their land, their promised land is gone. That's how the earliest collection, books one through three of the Psalms, end on a pretty tragic note. Psalm 90 opens the fourth book of the Psalms. And um, if you want to flip there, um, the first thing that you'll notice is that it's attributed to Moses. It's the only Psalm in the Bible that's attributed to Moses. Um, Here's where I usually ask my students, who was king of Israel in the time of Moses? It's a trick question. There was no king of Israel in the time of Moses. They're wandering around the wilderness. There is no kingdom of Israel, and there is no king. The simplest answer is that in the time of Moses, the Lord was the king of the Hebrew people. Um, And so Wilson picks right up on this and says, hey, this, this can't be by accident. And then the psalm goes on to essentially describe the Lord as a source of refuge. You have been my refuge in times of crisis. And so right after this only psalm in the entire Psalter, 
that's attributed to Moses during a time when the Lord was the king and not any Davidic king. Um, that's followed by what's usually called the Adonai Melech series, which just means the Lord is king. If you look at the Psalms between 91 and 100, you'll find a very common phrase. Uh, a number of those Psalms begin and repeat the phrase, the Lord is king or the Lord reigns. And so um, this is uh, Wilson's whole idea. The fourth and fifth books of the Psalms provide a theological response to the problem of exile. Essentially to say, it doesn't matter if you're wandering in the wilderness with Moses or if you're secure in the promised land under Davidic king or you're a captive in a foreign territory. The circumstances don't matter. The Lord was and is and will always be king. And um, no circumstance can really change that reality. And so it's kind of a, a wisdom reminder to the readers of the Psalms. You guys put your eggs in the wrong basket. Your security is in the Lord as king, not in any promised land or any Davidic dynasty. So um, that is um, the idea of the editorial purpose of the Psalms. Essentially that they're arranged in a meaningful way that collectively they provide this response to a faith crisis and an identity crisis, which is that um, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Um, a follower of God should root their identity in the sovereignty of God. And that is an immutable reality, regardless of circumstances that might suggest the contrary. So those three things, the idea that the Psalms are poetry and that that can powerfully imagine a world that can shape you, that they're open and accessible and that there are many opportunities, points of contact between you, um, your experience in the Psalms, and the idea that they are meaningfully arranged, that the people who put the Psalms together for you saw in them an answer to the question, who am I? especially when uh, my identity is threatened by the circumstances of life. Those three things really sort of lead to our last point, which uh, I'll, uh, Trevor, I'll try to make quickly. I know I'm running out of time. Uh, which is that the Psalms have a formative capacity. Um, and what that means is that um, the Psalms have the ability uh, to shape you as a person. Um, when you view them in a particular way. So rather than seeing the Psalms as uh, something that a psalmist writes to you, it's a little bit more like the Psalms are something that a psalmist has written for you, that those are your words, almost like a, a garment that you put on the language of the Psalms and they will teach you, they will orient you, They'll shape you um, in a particular way, which is to be um, a citizen in the kingdom of God who recognizes your complete dependence and contingency on God. And it doesn't really matter what the circumstances of life are. If you are lost, if you're secure, if you are a captive in a hostile land, it doesn't really matter. Um, if you don't know how to approach God, and um, progress in that pilgrimage of faith, the Psalms really kind of 
give you the language. They give you the words to mold you and craft you into that sort of person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. He, he probably would have gone on to be the significant theologian of, um, of our age. He, was, um, he died at a very young age. He wasn't even 40, I don't think. He was unfortunately executed um, by uh, Nazi Germany, which is really tragic, but um, he's an amazing uh, theologian. The Cost of Discipleship is a, a classic work. Dr. Copan, Vic, will know far more about it and him than I do. Um, but I find that all of the heavy hitters, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, N.T. Wright, one of the most uh, preeminent New Testament scholars of our day, is alive today, um, they're, they're all looking at the Psalms and saying the Psalms give us language that show us how to, uh, how to talk to God, and they shape us into a supplicant, a worshiper of God. But the idea is not really new. It's not something that Bonhoeffer or N.T. Wright invented. It's actually really old. Uh, Athanasius um, is also someone Dr. Copan will know more about. He was really probably one of the most influential church fathers in early Christian history. He had a lot to do with shaping our uh, canon, our uh, Bible, the way that it looks. Um, he also, a lot of our understanding of the Trinity, um, which I'm not sure I really understand the Trinity, but Athanasius had a pretty good grip on it, and a lot of what we know comes from uh, his language. Um, he takes a pretty interesting moment, and he, he uses the language. He said, this is a really astonishing thing about the Psalms. In the other scriptures, we, we view these uh, other texts as God's word to us, but we see the Psalms as words appointed to us and our emotions and our situation, our calibration in the world. They, they become our words. Um, we recognize our own words in the Psalms. And uh, we're moved by them as if they were our own words and that as if we were speaking and they become not the Psalms from a psalmist from the ancient world, but they are um, our own songs. Um, I, I think that this is essentially how I would try to answer the question, what am I supposed to do with these Psalms? they um, they're poetry. And so they have this amazing ability to imagine a world. The world that they imagine is the kingdom of God. And you sort of, you step into that world that they imagine and you kind of pop out the other side a little bit different. And so you inhabit that world. And by inhabiting that kingdom of God, you're shaped, formed into a citizen of that kingdom in the Psalms, in that world that Psalms imagine, all of life is contingent on God. Um, all of life d- derives from being completely oriented to being contingent on a sovereign God, the God who reigns, the, the Lord who is king. And the kind of the secret sauce to life in the Psalms is the, the person who recognizes that you are completely contingent and dependent on God and that the circumstances of the world don't move you. They don't determine who you are. You are a citizen who is contingent on the sovereign God who reigns. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. In the Psalms, righteousness isn't, um, it, it's not uh, the discipline of piety. 
It's the confession of dependence on God. That's the righteous person. That's the person who's correctly aligned, who's been oriented or shaped by that imagined, uh, by that imagined world. And so it's about recognizing one's dependence on God more than having it all together and being uh, uh, super righteous, which is good because Dr. Coban is far more righteous than me. So um, uh, the Psalms are, are my way in, I think. Um, and the, the key is that it provides an immutable rootedness. One of my uh, favorite Psalm interpreters, Jay Clinton McCann, um, in his commentary in the Psalms, he said the Psalms are about confessing the reign of God in the midst of circumstances to the contrary. So when it looks like the world uh, has God beaten, <laughs> that God is not in charge of, of the world where evil is pervasive, where worthlessness and um, uh, wickedness prevail, even though it looks like that by the circumstances um, you're, you're aligned as a, a citizen in the kingdom under a sovereign God. And that is truly the way that the world is. That's how God seems to have imagined the world in the Psalms, almost as if the Psalms say, um, is God saying to you, here's how you should talk to me. And here's how your posture is uh, toward me. So the answer to the question, what in the world am I supposed to do with the Psalms? It doesn't look like my slides have updated. Let's try that again. There we go. The first thing I'd say is um, take it easy with those poems. Uh, you, we're a high-paced society, and slowing down is not a thing that we do, and that's part of what makes poetry, the Psalms, so hard to read. You can't really consume Psalms on demand. You inhabit them for a season. I would encourage you to read a psalm a day for a little while and you'll start to kind of get your bearings and eventually there's going to be some chemistry. A psalm will click for you and it's just the world, particular world that psalm imagines meshes with whatever your experience is at the moment and there'll be a kind of a little bit of a click. I would take that psalm and I would pray it about every day for about a month. And that's what I mean by slow down. Spend some time inhabiting the world of a psalm. Just take it real slow. Uh, the other thing I would suggest is um, when, when a crisis hits your life, that is not the time to start looking around the psalms for language. All right? You, you need to get familiar with the neighborhood now. Um, you see everybody talking about getting your hurricane kit ready now um, before the hurricanes come. It's the same kind of idea. The more time you spend perusing and exploring the Psalms now, um, the more familiar and ready you'll be when the winds change in your life and things get volatile. And you'll already have the language to help you um, grow through and survive that experience. Um, and so I would encourage you to sort of think of the Psalms as a space that you can inhabit and sort of as your spurt, uh, spiritual hurricane survival kit. Um, storms will come. Uh, Trevor has been pastoring long enough. He'll probably tell you that um, if things are going great for you, just wait for a little while. Um, your, your storm is coming and um, think of the Psalms as 
um, the linguistic survival kit for you. Um, and that's kind of the, the last thing I would say. The, the Bible tells the story of the world according to um, uh, the divine author. It's how God sees the world. And the Psalms are your, your lines. So that's kind of my bit. I hope I didn't take too much time. So we're doing okay. Oh, man, and, uh, I'm happy to entertain questions. I cannot get over that last thing you said. Way to drop a bomb on your last point. The Bible tells the story of the world according to its divine author. The Psalms are your lines. Wow. That's, I mean, this has been fantastic, but I don't know about all, all the 90 other people who are with us right now. That blew my mind. Wow. Well, um, instead of me just, me just drooling over that. Why don't we, uh, Dr. Dave, why don't you go ahead and stop your screen share so we can see everybody. And uh, my goodness, wow. There we go. Great. Can we go ahead and uh, give him a hand and say thank you to Dr. Nathan? Just fantastic stuff. My goodness. Um, man, that was really, 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 really good. Um, the Psalms are just some of my favorite favorite topics as uh, prayer is one of my favorite topics to teach on and read about. And so, um, that, uh, Nathan, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourself because you and I are going to be bantering back and forth. You're good. You don't need to mute yourself. I'm also going to unmute uh, Vicki and Kathy in case they want to chime in at any point. All right. So uh, why those guys, why don't you go ahead and unmute you yourself. So you guys there? You got it? Okay. There we go. Great. Um, that was just um, – Man, that was that was fantastic. That was uh, the I took a picture of of the thoughtful arranging of the Psalms of Book one, uh, one, two, three, four, and five around the Davidic monarchy and the rise and fall of that, and then in exile, and then God's ultimate rule and reign. I had never noticed that before. Man, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Well, nobody um, did for a couple thousand years, so. Hey, there you go. Right. Yeah. Um, still just man, really, really great. Um, all right. So are you ready for a few questions? Sure. All right. Fire away. All right. We, um, we're going to get these in random order. Hey everybody, this is the best week I think you guys have had for questions. So go COH, give yourselves a pat on the back. Um, you guys have asked great questions all throughout tonight. Um, so good job. We're getting the hang of this. Um, so here's the first one uh, from Ryan, who actually just chimed this in. I thought it was really good. Um, he asked, uh, wait, nope, that's not Ryan. Uh, yeah, Melissa asked this. Um, oh, shoot, I lost it. So um, she's asking that the Psalms, so if the Psalms aren't necessarily in order, do I have to read them in order? Uh, no, you do not. In fact, um, I would probably encourage you at first not to do that. In fact, I would encourage you not to read a whole lot of Psalms at once. It just, it, for most folks, it's not really an effective strategy. You'll just kind of get overwhelmed. Um, it'll kind of feel like you're hitting a brick wall. Um, what I usually encourage um, and what a, a lot of folks will encourage um, is to um, kind of explore a particular type. So um, Psalms, uh, they can be sort of categorized. So you think of like a kind of a taxonomy, like um, you can arrange plants and, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, all that kind of stuff. 
you can arrange psalms in a particular type as well. And so um, you can read a lament psalm from an individual, and then you can read and make sense of that psalm in the context of all of the other individual lament psalms. And um, that's usually kind of a better strategy, at least at first, to, um, to kind of get into the psalms because you're reading psalms that have a kind of genetic similarity. And so it's a, it's a good way to kind of get to know the way psalms go. And they do actually kind of fall into particular types. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would uh, recommend. Um, there's uh, some good books I can uh, recommend. Uh, Trimper Longman, who I mentioned earlier, I showed you a picture of his book, How to Read the Psalms. He does a good job of kind of giving you sort of a list of here's some lament psalms, here's some Thanksgiving psalms. So that's Great. probably a better strategy than starting at one and reading all the way through. Great. Okay. Um, here's another question. Um, uh, we're just going to hop around kind of topically a little bit here. Um, Rick asked this question and I think this is good. And this is something that I, I long for as a pastor, as somebody who helps kind of help craft the worship um, of our church. Uh, Rick asked this, the Psalms don't seem to be used in the church much anymore. Do you have a good guess? Why is it possibly because of not understanding their purpose? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, so I, I, I teach a, a, a class to seminary students on the Psalms, and we we spend the whole class period. Uh, we read a you know read an article and explore that question. Why why are they not used? In in some respects, they kind of are used. So they um, they appear in lectionaries. Um, they they have kind of this long standing. Our heavy... church might not know what a lectionary is. Yes. <laughs> so Cycles of selected reading. So, you know, we read this passage um, each week and every week in the lectionary, a selection of passages, there's, there's always a psalm. So they, they kind of frequently appear. But in worship, which is kind of like in their wheelhouse, we don't really find them as much. And we really don't find them in the pulpit very much. People don't preach them. And that does probably have a lot to do with um, poetry. It's just kind of a conundrum to a lot of folks. Um, another problem is that, um, uh, have you ever noticed that like you'll, if you, if you still get DVDs from Netflix, like you'll see a movie and you think that's a great movie. And then by the time it arrives, you're not there anymore. You ever noticed Wait, that? Wait, they still do that? Okay. So you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, some folks have observed that you sort of plan the use of Psalms and that sort of the emotional state of the congregation doesn't really line up with the emotional state of the Psalm and that it's hard to coordinate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, but I have had, I've had students actually push back and say, now, now, Hey, we actually, we actually sing the Psalms a lot and sure. um, we sing them every Sunday in our praise and worship. We work those lyrics in, so some folks are doing it. Yeah. I do think that um, their inaccessibility and not really clearly understanding what they do and how they function um, inhibits what should really be their kind of widespread use. The church worship service is where the Psalms could really shine. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. One of my, uh, one of my mentors used to teach me that, um, uh, a, a worship service is incomplete if it doesn't have a psalm in it. Right. Yeah. So, and I think that they preach too, um, because you're trying to connect with people 
traversing the pilgrimage of faith. Like here's where I'm at. And the Psalms, they, they give language to it. Even when your congregation, they're, they're not in a really a great spot. And what they have to say to God is, I feel like you're not on the other end. Like, where are you? Yeah. And uh, the Psalms can really powerfully speak to that experience in the long haul of the life of faith. Yeah, I think that's something that can be really helpful for so many people. That's a common experience of people feeling distant from God. And so much of the type of church that we're part of in our vein and stream of contemporary modern worship doesn't do lament and doesn't do emotions of sadness well. And so Which I, is, think ever, I think you're onto something there. Ironically, in the book of praises, that's the actual Hebrew term for the Psalms, uh, lament is actually the most common kind. Interesting. There's more laments than anything else. But you're right. And that's really kind of more um, American society. That's not true yeah. everywhere. But for us, we're really uncomfortable with the idea of public lament. Mm-hmm. We're um, in a community context, conceding or confessing um, not our best state of our, our faith. When things aren't great, we're not really want other people to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. You ready for another one? Sure. Okay. Um, this one, um, it looked like it came from Vic. Um, and I said, thank you to that. And he said, well, actually this was Kathy's question instead. And I said, that's okay. We all know that Kathy is smarter than Vic. So, you know, that's okay. Sorry to throw you under the bus, Vic. Um, everybody knows it's true. Yeah. I feel you, Vic. Same same boat for me. So, um, you know, guys, I'll read, um, well, I think both your questions are fantastic. I'll read them, but then uh, Kathy, Vic, if you want to chime in any point with Dr. Maxwell, please feel free to, I have you unmuted for that. Um, so they first asked, um, if you could explain more of the implications of, and this is such a fantastic phrase, could you explain more the implications of the Psalms being man's words to God rather than just God's words to humanity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, when I teach interpreting the Bible to students, that's usually a place where we have to really camp out because, um, most students don't ever really think about the whole idea of, you know, communication theory. We have a a source for a message. We have a medium for a message and then we have a recipient and that our normal just assumption about scripture is that um, these are God's words to us. Mm -hmm. So when we read about the Davidic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, we see that this is God talking to us Um, And even in other um, sort of communication arrangements, we think about the letters. So that's not necessarily like we see it as explicit, you know, explicitly God talking to us, but we see Paul writing to a church saying, here's how, here's who you are in Christ. And so we see it as God's direct word to that church, be who you are in Christ. But um, the communication structure is just really in the opposite direction in the Psalms. And it's just this weird property um, that we kind of tend to overlook and it changes the rules of interpretation a bit. So it's not explicitly God talking to us. It's explicitly a person voicing words uh, to God. And that's really different than almost all of the rest of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sort of have to take that into account. And that is probably 
what's part of what's behind those first few slides when I show you those quotes and the kind of hesitation. Like yep. We don't want to get our doctrine directly from the Psalms because it's not really God talking. It's humanity talking to God. And sometimes humanity is not in the best place. And so they say stuff like this is yes. not what I'm supposed to say, but this is where I'm at. And this is what I have to say. Yeah. Two things I'd say about that. One, that's one of the most amazing things about the Psalms is that they don't ever turn away from communicating with God. We do that. Things get bad. Our life of faith gets on tilt. Our impulse is to turn away from God. Say like, I just, I, I literally can't even right now. Yeah. The psalmist never does that. I literally psalmist. can't even right now. I love that you just said that. <laughs> the psalmist doesn't flinch. The psalmist says, I, I, I don't have the right things to say, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep my engagement with you and I'm never going to turn away from that. Yeah. That's a really encouraging thing. Yeah. And it seems to be that God seems to wrap that up and take it in almost as if God says, Hey, it's what I want is for you to stay oriented and engaged and in communication with me. If you have something to get off your chest and you're not in the right spot, um, I'm a big enough God. I'm going to scoop you in and pull you in and I want you to engage me. And so even though the direction of communication is in the opposite direction, it's human beings talking to God because it's part of inspired, inspired scripture. It's kind of like God says, here's how you should talk to me. And Uh, stunningly it includes, we just rewind that. Oh my God. (laughs) It includes the idea that, um, it, even if you, um, don't have a really good thing to say, even if your theology is not right, I'm a big enough God. What I want is for us to stay wired up. Yeah. I want every single person who's tuned in right now to just take that to heart. Uh, that, that is a huge word for us and our spiritual lives of uh, how, you know, Dr. Maxwell, you put it just the nail right on the head there. Oftentimes we want to withdraw when we're hurting, when we're angry, when we're confused, when God feels distant. And you're saying, no, the Psalms teach us that God is teaching us just bring it anyway. Yeah. And they don't just teach you how to do it. They actually, they give you the words to do it. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, with that line of thought, here's another question um, from the, the brilliant Copans. Um, they asked, uh, <laughs> I see, Vic is pointing Kathy. Smart man, Vic. It's their anniversary. Happy wife, happy life. It's the secret right there. Um, yeah, the, they asked about the, um, what are we supposed to do with, so the, high, the highfalutin theological term, everybody's called the imprecatory psalms. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Maxwell, you've already, you started to hint at it a little bit. Um, can you explain to everybody, what does it mean that term to say imprecatory Psalms? And then what are we supposed to do with those? Can you unpack that just for a couple of minutes? Sure. Uh, an imprecatory Psalm is really just a fancy way of talking about Psalms that contain language of, uh, violence or harm or aggression against another. So mm-hmm. usually against some form of an enemy, but it basically wishes harm or violence on, on another. Hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you, Trevor, um, that uh, subject has really tied uh, interpreters up in a knot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, even really increasingly so. I think it's become more of a problem in the last 20 years than it was before. So we can't really 
you know, we're not going to solve that riddle today, but I, I do, I do want to acknowledge that it really is a difficult problem that, you know, what are we supposed to do with these? Um, do we really want to pray a Psalm uh, where we're, you know, wishing violence and some of them are really somewhat severe. The imprecatory Psalms are actually pretty common. Um, even that Psalm 41, if you read the last stanza, you saw some language about um, so that I can repay my enemies, but it, it, that dial goes to 11 and there are some Psalms. Psalm 137 is usually kind of a classic example that talks about really severe violence against the infants of the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. What do we do with those? Well, um, I just kind of give you the sort of the, the range um, just really quick. The, on, on one end is the sort of uh, exceptional view, which is basically um, we sort of uh, dismiss them or sort of wall them off um, in scripture. Some, uh, some folks, a surprising number of folks are very upfront about this, kind of the exceptional view, which is they make sense in their historical context. You know, the Lord was tied to the Israelites. And so enemies of the Israelites were enemies of the Lord and violence was the way things were back then. And so that they, they make sense there, but they don't really belong in the mouths of Christians today. Um, a sub, uh, a lot of folks actually will explicitly take that exceptional view. A huge number of folks implicitly basically do that. They don't come right out and say, I don't, you know, I don't want to do those, but they, you don't ever actually catch them earnestly trying to figure out what to do with the imperatory psalms. At the other end of the spectrum is um, the uh, kind of unqualified view, which says there's no real problem here. Um, there are people who are on God's side. There are people who aren't. And uh, you pray for the violent demise of the people who aren't. Mm-hmm. And there we go. Mm. Um, that's a thing. Um, for most folks, most folks really can't kind of stomach that, that sort of violence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Kind of in the middle, the most common view is that the imprecatory psalms function as a kind of release valve. So in the experience of life, people do things, you know, uh, Vic will say terrible things behind my back um, to all of, uh, all of our friends at work and I'll be uh, hurt and I'll have a lot of anger um, at, at Vic. Um, Cause you know, there he goes again. He's always doing that. I, but instead, I don't know how you could ever say such a horrible thing about Vic. <laughs> um, we have a long history. <laughs> Um, instead of me taking that out on, on Vic, I redirect that and sort of vent off that anger and that steam by sort of taking, taking it to God. God's big enough to handle that. So I redirect that anger somewhere else and sort of lay that at the feet of God. And so it kind of has, it has this cathartic effect. The Psalms give us language to express that emotion without really harming the human community. Mm-hmm. That's a really common view. There's just two things that I would mention about that. Um, one is that that doesn't really deal with the problem of regulating how those psalms get used in the community. I've seen this happen where someone says, I'm really mad about this, and I'm going to use this imprecatory psalm to give me language of how, how I want to do violence, 
And it really wasn't an appropriate use of that imprecatory psalm. It wasn't warranted. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea of how the community regulates the use of imprecatory psalms in that kind of cathartic way is still a remaining problem. The second thing I'd mention is that viewing the imprecatory psalms as cathartic doesn't resolve human responsibility. I actually have a quote. I'm going to see if I can pull it up. Yeah, sure. Um, Nancy DeClassy Walford, she's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. Um, she kind of makes this point. Uh, I was just looking at it before we, before we started. As long as she's talking about imprecatory psalms, as long as people are angry and vengeful against leaders of those countries who deprive their citizens of basic human needs of food and water and shelter, we'll never have the energy to find ways to provide folks with those needs. As long as we're angry and feel vengeful at how those who commit violent crimes, we will never have the uh, energy to move out into our communities and work to eradicate the root causes of those uh, violent crimes. She kind of goes on and on and on. And so I want to say that the precatory Psalms, using them to sort of vent our anger, isn't the end game. They get that emotion out of the way, you blow off that steam, and so that you're still responsible to pursue pursue that problem and say, okay, what was the source of that anger? Why did that happen? How do I I take responsibility for it and try to solve that problem in my community? It's a really important thing. Um, I just mentioned Nancy DeClassy Walford. She's got a great essay called The Theology of the Imprecatory Psalms. There's another guy, um, Joel Lamont, who's got an article, uh, an essay called "Saying Amen to the Violent Psalms," and he he addresses that problem of how the community regulates. Yeah. Their- Those are things I'd recommend, but probably the best work on this really special problem. We spend about a week on this mm. with my uh, students because it really is a mm-hmm. kind of a specialized problem. There's a guy by the name of Eric Zinger. Mm-hmm. He's a German uh, uh, theologian, but he writes really good in English, better than I do in English. Uh, he's got a book called um, A God of Vengeance. Eric Zinger, E-R-I-C-H-Z-E-N-G-E-R, A God of Vengeance. And I would highly recommend it. It's a, a real small book. It's pretty accessible. And if, if you are scratching your head about those violent psalms and what to do with them, that's the book I would recommend. Wow, that's great. I think my big takeaway from what you're saying is uh, the catharsis of it is good, but that doesn't absolve you from the rest of the discipleship that talks about human anger in the rest of the scriptures. That I just love that. I just love that. That's really helpful. Um, uh, you got time for two more quick questions? I got all, all time for all the questions you want. All right. We will definitely do one. If we can do two, we might do that. All right. So uh, this question is from Lynn. Um, she is referring to you, um, to your presentation. Uh, this doesn't necessarily have to do with the Psalms, just more with a picture of the icon of, uh, Athanasius, Athanasius. I'm always afraid I'm going to say it wrong. He's actually my favorite church father. Uh, you know, yeah. Um, the incarnation just was huge for me, uh, in reading that. Um, but I can't feel like I'm always going to say his name wrong. So I feel like a pretender. He's my favorite. I can't say his name anyway. Um, she asked, it looks like his holding his ring finger down with his thumb and the other fingers are up. What is the meaning of that? 
Um, I, the short answer is I don't know, but, um, in that iconography, um, there's actually quite a bit of symbolic detail. And Vic, do you know what that particular, you'll frequently see icons of early church fathers making a particular, it's almost like they're doing gang symbols and they actually, (laughs) they do have, um, kind of, uh, import they're meaningful, it's the, this, that's sort of out of my wheelhouse. I'm not like a historical theologian. And so I, I, I never know. Um, Vic, do you know what that particular gesture means? Um, I, I don't recall it right off the top of my head. Um, I, so I don't have the visual right, right in front of me to, to, to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, um, I know who would know. So if uh, uh, Pastor Trevor, um, I can, uh, chase that down and uh, send it your way and you can route it, but it means something. Yeah. If they're doing something like that, sometimes that's, I know it's, you know, referential to the Trinity. Right. Um, I don't have the picture right in front of me. Um, great. Okay. Uh, one last question then we'll, we'll cut it loose real quick. Um, this is from me. So uh, when you're talking about the books and their orders, I thought that was, uh, and the order of the history of Israel, um, because I love the Psalms and that, that just instantly clicked with me. Oh, duh. Cause at the end of book two, it says thus ends the prayers of David. And, um, that's like, duh, of course it's that. Um, to, how do you handle then in places in book three, four, and five, where it does say a Psalm of David? How, what do you do with that? So, um, Wilson's theory works best at those seams, at those kind of load-bearing psalms in Mm -hmm. the overall structure of the psalms. But one of the critiques of his theory is that as you sort of venture out into the middle of the books, it's not as entirely consistent. It's not like all of the psalms in books one through three are laments and just about David. And it's not like all of the psalms in four and five are all praises and don't have much to do with the Davidic kingdom. So they are sort of peppered um, all the way through. Mm -hmm. Um, And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason at a high resolution to the distribution of Davidic Psalms. All Mm -hmm. Wilson really, all that Wilson really said is that there's a higher concentration of Davidic Psalms in those first three books. And it's not at all the case that they don't appear in books four and five. So it's just, it's, it's just kind of a, uh, a caveat to what is not an exact science. <laughs> so it's like a, a good working theory of organization, but not, you know, if you're, if you're a type A OCD organizer, it's not the type of organization you're looking for. No. And what Wilson's, I mean, what Wilson says is that it has a lot to do with the pre-existing collection. So you'll notice that there's like the Psalms of Asaph, the Psalms of Korah. And so there seem to have been before even the five book structure, these smaller groups that circulated and that probably has a lot to do with um, the random end of the distribution of the Psalms as we see them today. Great. The editing has to do with those seams at the very final stages. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, uh, we are out of time. So uh, let's all, I put it back in gallery view. So we see everybody. Let's go ahead and uh, give a hand clap and thank Dr. Maxwell. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah. Uh, we want to remind everybody, one per- person to ask a question, how can I get a copy of this recording? Uh, now, if all of our technology works and my software doesn't crash my computer, um, we post the recording of this video on our website by Thursday. It's probably late in the day on Thursday, definitely on Friday. That's on YouTube. 
on our website and uh, we're going to get the audio on our podcast as well. So that's where you can guys go and check that out. Great. Also so, in the slides to you, Pastor Trevor. And uh, if anyone wants to uh, reach out to me, you can uh, look me up. Uh, the easiest way is to go to PBA, Palm Beach Atlantic University's website. I'm somewhere around there. Shoot me an email. I'd be glad to hear from you. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much again. And thanks everybody for coming to Hope University session four. We will see you next next week for session five on theories of creation. And it's going to be a fantastic uh, and really thought provoking time. So again, Dr. Maxwell, thanks so much, man. And uh, man, you're funny. You hit the Psalms and you mentioned Kanye and all the things. So you killed it, man. That was great. And we're just delighted that you and your family are, are becoming a part of community of hope. We're uh, glad to be a part of it. Thank you. All right. Great. All right. God bless you, everybody. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. See you. Yep. Take care, everybody. And it was great.